May the Lord bless the reading, the pronunciation, and the hearing of his holy scripture. 1 Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moach, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And, it was, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gerashites, the Gizrites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, and as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeromelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish, instead, uh, and Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their fo forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know when your what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life.
Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Lord, how great you really are. Um, and I agree with Kyle, it, it will be wonderful throughout history to unfold your greatness and see it multiplied again and again and again, over and over. And we won't run out of time to be amazed at your, your greatness. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your grace to us, that that is a future that awaits us. Uh, Father, thank you for gathering us as your family to worship together in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're grateful that, uh, that you have given us this gift. And uh, Father, I want to pray uh, today for um, the races as they're getting ready to move. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, the great progress that's been made for them so far. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with them in the final details of buttoning up the house. Lord, would you um, give them amazing grace, just, just a, a miracle that might happen for the um, Lancaster house to get finished and sold. Um, and Lord, just bring all of those things together in a way that they can only praise you for what you've done in their lives. And we pray that you would bless them as they go to Ohio, that it would be a, um, a great next step in their adventure of walking with you through whatever you call them to. And Lord, uh, be with us because we'll miss them. We'll miss their, uh, their participation here and their, their uh, kindness. So please bless them, Lord and uh, help us to, to move through their, their departure as well. And Lord, I want to especially thank you and praise you for the progress that's been made in Joanne's recovery and her, her health. Um, Lord, she just looks so much more cheerful, so much more upbeat. Um, pain is gone, and, and Lord, I pray that you would be with her, continue to be with her through rehab. And uh, Father, when she's finished and she returns to her home, Lord, I, was, I pray that you would remind us as a church to continue to care for uh, for her. She'll, she'll have some real needs, and I uh, pray that we would continue to be there for her and uh, be the body of Christ in her life. And uh, thank you that she is part of our family and that we are her family. And uh, help us to, to live up to our requirements, to, to care for her out of love, not just requirements. And Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word? Uh, help us to see and to understand what you have for us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so you remember last week, we did the sermon, and it was the story of David sneaking into Saul's camp and stealing his, uh, his spear and his water jar. And I said that uh, that was very similar to the event where David was in the cave and Saul came in and he cut off the corner of his robe. And those two are just so similar. There's so many uh, comparisons to be made there. And what I said was the reason that those are so similar and so close together is because often our biblical authors are not writing really strictly chronologically, like a biography or something, but they're hitting themes, and so they'll draw stories together. Uh, they'll skip over events and just draw them closer together. Turns out that that observation, that little bit of advice, is going to be a lot more useful than I thought it would be. I thought it only applied last week. Well, we're coming into the end of 1 Samuel. The last five chapters, 27 through 31, they're actually just one story just one event, um, and the author has organized them thematically. He's, he's, he's leading us somewhere because, I say that because, David and Saul at the end of last chapter split ways. They will never see each other again. They're not going to meet anymore in the story. But our author wants us to keep them together. He, he's really working to show us the distinction, the transition from Saul, the king that he's rejected, to David, the man after his own heart. And so what our author does is he kind of switches back and forth between these two. The stories will move back and forth. So 
what that means is we're going to handle the last remaining portion of 1 Samuel as one story. And so what I'll do is I'll, I will probably retell that story each sermon, but we'll take a look at what this chapter contributes to that story. So let me give you the overview of the end of the story, how it goes. So chapter 27, you heard this morning, David flees to Gath. He, he goes to the Philistines because he's afraid Saul is going to kill him. That's chapter 27. That story gets interrupted. There's a break in it, and we get Saul is, uh, is watching the Philistines prepare for war, and he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord doesn't answer, so he goes to the witch of Endor. He goes to a medium to get an answer. That's, that's 28. Chapter 29, the Philistines are, are gathering to attack, and David is marching out with them, but the commanders, the Philistine commanders go, no, nope, he's not coming. So they reject him and send him home. Chapter 30, David gets home to Ziklag and finds the place has been raided. Somebody came in and, and just took everything. So he and his men go off and try to recover what they'd lost. And then chapter 31 is the battle with the Philistines and Saul is dead. And that's the end of the book. So that's the, the general arc of the story. That's where the story goes. Um, but like I said, what we'll do is each chapter we'll take and we'll say, what is this chapter teaching us under this story? Um, so we're going to start with chapter 27. To understand chapter 27, we have to know a little bit about chapter 28. And, and the reason I say that is because the author has drawn these two events very close together on purpose. So go ahead and throw the map up. 28 is actually chronologically out of order. And, and here's what I mean by that. So this is the, the layout of what's going on. Um, in chapter 29, the Philistines uh, gather at Aphek down there in the south. So that's in chapter 29. But at the beginning of chapter 28, they're up in Shuman, Shunem, which is farther in. So it's unlikely that they were that far in and then backed out. The author has moved the story of, of um, Saul going to Endor uh, because he's trying to draw these two things together. So what's the comparison? Let's do a comparison and contrast between 27 and 28. Uh, so 27, it begins with David just saying, I shall one day perish by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. He doesn't inquire of God. He just goes. He recognizes the threat that Saul is. He has had Saul so close so many times, he's got to realize I'm dead. He's going to get me. Um, he doesn't acquire the Lord, he just goes. What, date, what happens with Saul is Saul sees the Philistines mounting an attack and he inquires of the Lord and the Lord doesn't answer him. He, he, he tries every way he can think of to get the Lord to answer him and he won't answer. So instead of going, well, he goes someplace, he goes to Endor, he finds the last remaining medium in the land and he goes to her and he says, I want you to bring Saul back for me because I want to talk to him. I got to find out why Yahweh's not talking to me. And the answer he gets is, you're going to die and your sons are going to die in this battle. It's over. What David gets is David is in the land of the Philistines. He hasn't inquired of the Lord. He's, he's kind of functioning there. But I'm going to argue by God's grace, by, by God's sovereignty, he delivers him from having to attack Israel. So you get these two very divergent results of what happens. Saul goes to his death. David is delivered from what could be a really sinful thing if he goes and he attacks Israel. 
So what we're gonna look at today, where we're gonna go with this is I wanna look at why do we get two different results here? They both did something wrong, but one gets delivered from his wrong and one gets killed for his wrong. So let, let's take a look at that. We'll, we'll start just by working through uh, chapter 27. So David says, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better than I shall escape to the land of the Philistines. Um, he's done this before, hasn't he? When Saul came and attacked him at his house, he took off and he ran to the Philistines. He ran to Gath and he pretended to be insane so that they would eventually kick him out safely. So this is nothing new. This is a strategy he knows will work. Saul will not follow him into the Philistine territory because that would be a de declaration of war and he won't do that. Is David so self-centered that he's afraid that he's going to be the one that gets killed? So far, the Lord has delivered him over and over again. Um, he's seen it repeatedly. He's got God's promise, you will one day rule Israel. So some of the commentators looked at this and said, this is really a lack of faith on David's part. Um, he's not trusting the Lord. The Lord has promised him, you, uh, you will reign in, in Israel. And now he's saying, no, I'm going to get killed. I think there's kind of a middle ground here. I think there's another way to look at this too, is it mentions that David and 600 men went with him. And then it mentions, and their families. And then it mentions, and David's two wives. So this is not 601 people going there that David has been leading through the wilderness. If every man had one or two wives, we're talking up to maybe a thousand people now. Now add children onto that, 1,500, 2,000, some people were estimating up to 3,000 people. So David, when he says me, I think he's identifying with his people, the, the crowd that's with him. He can't protect that many people out in the wilderness. He needs to be in the security of a city so that these people are secure someplace. So I think when he says it, Saul's going to get me, he's going to get me or my people. He's identifying himself with his people. That's what kings do. In the Old Covenant, that's what kings did is they represented their people. So that's why he decides, I've got to go someplace where I can be safe and I can keep Saul at bay. And the best place to do that is going to be in Philistine territory. That's, that's the only choice that I have. And so he goes and he meets Achish, the king, and convinces him somehow that it's okay that he's there, that he's actually on his side. Um, but he says... Look, if I found favor in your eyes, um, let me give, a, give me a place to go live. It's, it's not fair, it's not right that we be in the royal city. Um, you know, my men are, are you know, out in the wilderness for years and you know, we're probably pretty uncouth, not, not fit for the royal city. So give us someplace else. So he gives them Ziklag and that's where they move. They, he takes the family, they take the town of Ziklag and they settle there. And that's what they're doing now. They've, they've settled in there. Saul is not going to send anybody in to attack them. They're out close, close enough to the border. It's, it's, it's a good deal. Um, real quick, is it sinful for David to have done this? Was this a sin on David's part? It's a little murky of a question. It's, it's not quite clear. Um, Israel was told to dwell in the promised land. And, and later during the exile, they're told, don't go to Egypt, don't flee to these other people stay there. This is the promised land. They just haven't conquered it yet. They will one day conquer this and this will be part of Israel, but currently it's not, but it is what God has promised them. So technically he's staying in the promised land. Um, when he fled to Moab and brought his family and put his family there, God didn't rebuke him for that. Didn't say, hey, that's sinful for you to go hide here. 
what happened when he was there was Gad the seer came to him and said, okay, now it's time, go back and dwell in Judah. So you could say you were told to dwell in Judah and now you're not. Mm, I'm not sure if that was perpetual or just now it's time to return or what. See, it gets really murky. We can't really tell if this is sinful or not. I think what we need to remember is there's another category. There's, there's righteous, sinful, and then there's a third category called wise and unwise. So was it wise for, for David to do this? And that's where we can, we can argue about that. We could say, ah, there may be a scale of wisdom here. He's, he's not trusting the Lord. The Lord had promised him that he would be on the throne. So maybe it wasn't wise to do that, but maybe it was wise because maybe this is the means by which God is going to protect him. And so, yeah, yeah, it gets a little dodgy, doesn't it? Well, keep going and, and we'll clear it up a little bit. So David and his men went, went and made raids against all of these different people. Some of them we've never hear of again. Um, inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So David is in Ziklag and he goes out and he makes raids. This was what kings did in those days. That's how you increased your wealth is you'd go take over somebody else. So he would go and he would hit a village in one of these places and he would kill everybody in it so that word didn't get back where he was actually attacking. And then he would bring back the loot and he would bring it to Achish, to the king, and he would give the king a portion of, his, of what he had taken. So the king really likes him, thinks he's a great guy. Says, man, where did you go raiding today? And he lied. He flat out lied to him. He said, I was raiding in the Negev. Negev is a Hebrew word for south of Judah and these other places and, and uh, the Kenites. So these, these are people that aren't associated with you. Um, yeah, you don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm doing a good thing. So now, is David sinning and doing this? Well, it's a sin to lie. Um, so maybe he's not perfectly righteous in all of this. But you, what you get is you get this picture of David as a real human being. He's, he's not this, this plastic saint that you glue on your dashboard. He's, he's an actual flesh and blood human being. He makes wise and unwise decisions. He, he does right things and wrong things. He's, he's just human. Now, what Achish hears is that he's, he's doing these raids against Judah, and he's like, oh, this is perfect, because the word on the street is David's going to be um, Israel's future king. They're never going to accept him now. He's been, he's been raiding Israel. They're going to hate him. He's going to be a stench in their, in their uh, nose. And so what he thinks is, I have made him my servant for all, forever. He's mine forever. I own him now. I got him. And so then in chapter 28, it starts, and it, it reminds us that the, the uh, Philistines had gathered their forces to fight. And Achish says, David, you and your men are coming with me. You're going into this battle as we go into Israel. Because... As far as he knows, David has been raiding Israel. And so David says, now you will see what your servant can do. There's more to that phrase than, than is apparent right there. And so David's, he tells David very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So that's just the beginning of David's story. Now, what comes after that is we get interrupted by Saul going to the witch of Endor. And then 29, we pick it up again with David going into battle and the commander's going, hey, we don't want him here. And Achish saying, ah, oh, sorry, dude, you gotta go home. So that's what's going on. Like I said, this is one continuous story. So I'm gonna kind of borrow from what happens next, even though we're not there yet, because it'll help us to understand this portion. So what's going on in this portion? Why is it that David does this and God doesn't just go, you're on your own, dude. I told you what to do. You don't listen to me, you're on your own. 
Why is that? Well, the answer is grace. God's grace is why. The, the spirit of the Lord had come on David when he was anointed by Samuel and never left him. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and never returned to him. So that's the deciding factor between these two. Why would, that, why would God do that? It's not because David's perfect. He's not. He's, he's faulted. He's, he's failing. So what do we mean by grace? Um, a very wise friend of mine once told me, grace is easier to illustrate than it is to define. Try to nail it down with words, and you're, you're not going to quite capture it. But if you can picture it in a, in a, in a way, tell a story about it, then you kind of get what grace really is. So um, I'm going to try to do both. I'm going to try to give an illustration and a definition. How's that? So, okay, so a friend of mine, a friend, he's, he's my children's age. So he's a friend, but he's got two kids. He wrote a book, and he, he asked me if I would proofread it, if I would give a read of his, his like, third draft of the book. And I was like, I'm flattered that you would ask. Well, the book is actually kind of a Chronicles of Narnia almost. It's a story of a young boy named Hal who has a horrible home life, an abusive father, just, just a really abusive father. And Hal escapes into the woods every day. He goes out to play in the woods, and he has these mythical adventures with mythical creatures, and, and that's kind of the bright spot. The, the way he paints the home life is miserable. His father, Frank, is abusive, emotionally abusive, spiritually abusive, to his mom, physically abusive. And it's just ugly. His neighbors are bullies and abusers. And if that was the whole story, I wouldn't have probably finished reading the book. It was just too much. But that breaking it up by something bad happens and then he goes in the woods and he has this adventure, it really made it digestible. So the, the way the story kind of goes is um, his father, Frank, is this really abusive person. And we, we see that over and over and over again. And then eventually this other character named Uncle Sam shows up. And Uncle Sam comes to stay for the night. I think he was traveling through. And Frank starts just abusing and hurling insults at, at poor little Hal. He's 10 years old. And Sam very calmly says, you know, that's not OK. That's, that's not how you're supposed to treat your child. You, you shouldn't be like that. You, you should be encouraging him. And Frank, in a typical abuser fashion, nobody tells me how to run my family and storms out and slams the door. So Sam leaves. Uh, the story keeps going. Um, at close to the end of the book, Frank, his father, dies. Tragic accident. Frank dies. So they have to leave the house because his mom couldn't work. Frank would never stand for that. Women don't work. His, his not going to allow that to happen. So Hal is sitting in his room sorting through his stuff. He's got a box marked move and one marked um, donate. So he's going through things, and Uncle Sam comes in and sits down with him. He says, how are you doing, Hal? And Hal admits, I'm not really sorry he's gone. I haven't really cried for him. And, and Sam says, I, I understand. I understand. You know, and kind of talks him through that emotional, how do you deal with this person who was in your life but not a great person, and, and talks with him for a little bit about that. And then finally, um, Sam looks over and he says, hey, that's a nice-looking Bible. Are you going to keep that? Now, this was a Bible that Frank had given Hal earlier. And on the flyleaf on the inside, he'd written this, this perverse theology that he had, which was all about authority and, and submission. And so Frank is under God as the head of the family. 
and under Frank is his wife, and under his wife is Hal. And if you stay under this authority structure, then you'll be safe. But if you wander out, if you don't stay under my authority, so it's really this perverse, twisted kind of picture of it, and he drew it on the flyleaf. And so Hal looks at it, and he rips out the flyleaf. Now, the addition I had, he puts it in the keep box. But when I talked with the author, he said, I'm going to leave that ambiguous and let people decide if he keeps the Bible or not. So he, he said, so what do you think? What's, what do you think of the story? How was it? I was like, this was really well written. Uh, I think the pacing was good. I knew Frank. I, I have met Frank and a bunch of different people. I knew this guy. And I thought he nailed him. He, put it, he just put it together perfectly. He said, well, what's missing? I said, well, when Sam talks to Hal and says, are you going to keep that Bible? And Hal's not sure. Sam says, and this part almost made me cry. You know, there's more in there than what he said. There's more in there than what he taught. Because all that Frank would focus on is submission. I'm in charge. You're underneath me. You do whatever I say. And he said, there's more to it than that. And Hal's like, just wide-eyed, like, really? What? Because that's all he'd ever been trained to read the Bible as. And so he goes through a list. And I said, you know what, you know what my friend, you know what was missing from that list that Sam gave him? Grace. The abusers that I have known, the abusers that I've had, had interaction with, when you mention grace to them, their eyes glaze over. They don't understand the concept of grace. I said, that's what Hal needs is the idea of grace. And so as we were talking through it, I wanted to wordsmith it a little bit with him. I wanted to give him some ways to explain grace in that that might be helpful. So I said, you know, grace is more than just forgiveness. It's at least forgiveness, but it's more than that. Grace is actually loving somebody, is providing and caring for them when they're still wrong. That's, that's what grace is. The, the standard reformed way of describing grace is God's unmerited favor. And I think that's okay, but the words are not real clear in modern language. I think a better way to say that was, would be the love God has for us that we can't earn. It, it's God's love toward us. Grace is God's love toward us that we can't earn. We can't be good enough to do it. He just gives it to us. He sets it on us. So where do I get that idea? Well, John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would have eternal life. Did God wait until the world got good enough? Did he wait until the world came to the point where we, we need help, Lord? No, while the world was still at odds with God, God said, I'm giving my only begotten son to save them. That's grace. That's giving something to people who don't deserve it. Or Romans, um, oh no, I lost, oh there it is. Romans chapter five has, it talks about grace in a few different ways. Uh, verse six says, for while we were yet, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait until we were more godly. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's grace, you didn't earn it, you didn't merit it, you weren't good enough to get it. Um, verse eight, goes, he goes on and he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's grace to you says you are a horrible sinner. You're a sinner. Sinners cannot stand before a holy God. What are you going to do about that? There is nothing you can do about that. But I will. I will send my son. And then verse 10, he says, for while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God, for, I'm sorry, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So it's not just sinners. We were actually enemies of God in opposition to him. And what his response was, was not wipe them all out. His response was, I'm going to send my son to redeem them even though they're sinners, even though they're enemies, even though they're unrighteous. That's what grace is. It's God's love toward us that we can't earn. Now, when I say love, love is not, in biblical terms, not just a feeling. It's not that God has a picture of us on his mantle and every once in a while looks over it and just smiles and nods. That's nice, but that's not what biblical love is. Biblical love is that feeling, but it's also that feeling in action. To love someone is to do something for them. You see it in, in his doing, his working. So he, he sent his son for us because he decided that he would love us when we were unlovable. So that's what I mean by grace, and that's, that's how it fits together. So why does David get delivered from his foolishness, his sin, his, his lack of trust, his weak faith? Because God has affixed his, affixed his, his grace on David. He decided, this is a man after my own heart. This is the guy that I'm going to love, even when he's not quite after my own heart. Even when he's misbehaving, even when he has gone over to the enemy, my love is still fixed on him. It's not how good David could be. It was because God said, I have decided I will love David, period. And I do. And now look what I'm doing. I'm working in his life. What about Saul? God had, prom had said from the very beginning, I have rejected Saul. I've removed my spirit from him. I'm going to continue to pour a kind of grace on him because I want to preserve my nation Israel. I have a purpose there. So I'll keep him going, but I'm not going to deliver him from his own sins. And so when Saul, who knew better, he knew better than this. And you know how I know he knew better than this? It's because it says at the beginning of chapter 28, he kicked out all the mediums in the land. The necromancers, the, the, um, the wizards, all of that. He threw them all out of the land. And then when, when God stops answering him, he goes, is there any left? And he goes to one, so he knew it was wrong. And that's why God answers him through Samuel and says, you're dead. This is it. We're done. He didn't extend his grace to him. It was God's sovereign purpose to not extend his grace to him because he had worked in David, and he's gotten David to the point now where David is ready to ascend to the throne by God's grace. So God's grace extended, God's grace withheld. So as we go through this ending portion, as we watch these two kings march toward the throne, or march away and march toward the throne, I guess would be a way to put it, is to say David is not there because of his own merit. He doesn't remain there because of his own merit. He has sins that are mentioned during his reign, Bathsheba being the most famous one, but also he numbers Israel when he shouldn't have. Well, that maybe if we do Second Samuel, we'll get there. But um, that was called the sin of his, and he's judged for it. But he's not destroyed. He's not rejected, and that is all because of God's grace. And isn't it amazing that the, the beginning of the end section begins with this picture of grace? David could go into the land of the Philistines, could lie, could raid these other people, and still God is working with him and through him. Do you have to be good enough? Do you have to be right enough this week? I, I did enough Bible study. I, I prayed enough. 
I, I stayed away from whatever that thing is that I usually do that I should know I shouldn't do, and therefore God must like me this week. God loves you regardless of all of that. And, and the power of grace, the way that grace works in us, is God reminds us of his grace. He shows us his grace over and over again to wean our hearts off those things that are fall short of it and to trust him and go, it's better. It's better to be with you. Why, why don't I remember that? And so he gives us what the reform folks call, again, a means of grace. I don't like that term because what does means means? It, it doesn't mean the same thing as it meant back then. So I, I, what I call... What I like to call that is a pattern of grace. He gives us these things in our lives that we repeat over and over again that train us to say, he's good, he's, he's kind, he's benevolent, he loves me, he's gonna be good. One of them is Sunday morning worship. And it's not because you lucky people get to come and hear me talk. Um, God works around that anyway. It's because God draws you all together and we sing together. You hear other voices and you're reminded there are other people who are delighting in this truth about who God is. There, there are other people who care, who God's been working in their lives. Look what he's doing in all of these people. This is a blessing. This is a reminder of his grace in your life. And then when we pray together, you, you're reminded, I, when I go and I sit in the morning or I'm in the car or wherever I'm at and I'm praying by myself, I'm not the only person in the universe doing this. There are thousands of voices calling out to this God. He loves to hear his people. And, and you can actually begin to model prayers after the way you hear other people praying and, and thinking about things. I hadn't thought about praying for that. That's great. I'll do that. God is working all these things together to, to strengthen us in his grace, to remind us that he cares. And I don't want to steal Dan's thunder, but the Lord's Supper is a pattern of grace. We're going to celebrate that, and he's going to just build that right into us and, and remind us in another way that his love for us is sure. So that's why in Peter, he tells us, in Second Peter, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How on earth do you grow in grace? You can't earn grace. If you earn it, it's not grace, but you're commanded, not suggested. It's not passive. It's active imperative. Grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? Well, you grow in grace because God has already fixed his love on you. He said, I'm going to redeem this person. They're mine. Now I'm going to conform them to the image of my son. I'm going to make them more like Jesus every day. So grow in grace means you've already been saved. Now grow more like that. Be that person that God has, has created you to be. And you do that through these patterns, these things that he's given us over and over and over again. So read your Bible every day but don't do it religiously if if you have a morning where it's just crazy or a day you just don't get a chance to don't think oh i better squeeze this in before i fall asleep or god's going to be mad at me do it in a way that feeds your heart more grace but do it do read your bible every day except when you can't pray pray regularly pray out to him cry out to him for for a little thing like i'm in the parking lot and i need a parking space lord would you please give me one that's great do that but also spend time set aside and say i'm on the prayer e-news list and i got this list of prayer requests for people and let me pray through those or just think of faces in the congregation people you know and say let me that person needs some prayer that family i think that family needs some prayer let me lord let me just pray for him that's a pattern of God's grace. You're talking to your father. You need to be reminded that you're talking to your father. Come to church every Sunday. 
Maybe not this church. Maybe you're out of town. But come to church every Sunday. Make that a priority, but don't make it religious. Come because you want to hear God's word, because you want to be with God's people. You want to experience what God's got for us. But these are ways that you can grow in grace as you're hearing and being reminded over and over again because you will believe what you hear the most of. So if you're on social media constantly, you will believe what social media tells you, which is the world is horrible, people are terrible, and people are out to eat your face. That's not true, but that's, that's what social media will tell you. Or um, if you spend a lot of time on secular media, God's not real, uh, we're in this alone, we'll just make it up as we go. You'll believe that. Instead, immerse yourself in the things, the truth that God has given us. Remind yourself over and over again. It's not work to be saved. It is the life of a person who is saved and growing in grace. So David, is David perfect? No, David is not perfect. I think he really messed up here. I think, it, I think he would have been better off had he kept doing what God had him for him because then he would have never gotten hooked into, you're going into battle against Israel with me. He could have just hung out in the woods and waited, cleaned up afterwards, or attacked from the rear or something. There's a thousand other things he could have done, but God didn't reject him at that point. So if you mess this up, God's not going to reject you at this point. Why? Well, because of what I said earlier, those, all of those things that, that I read this morning, because God sent his son to save you. It doesn't depend on you and how good you are. It depends on Jesus. So I think David's faith at the beginning is extremely thin, very weak. I'm going to get killed. Saul is going to kill me. I better, I better get out of here. But you know what? David saved not because of the, the faithometer, and it's above 7.7 .7 on the faithometer. It's because of the object of his faith. He's trusting Yahweh. He's trusting what Yahweh has said, even when his faith is that thin where he goes, I better get out of here. Same thing for us. So the lesson we get here at the beginning of this closing portion where David is about to ascend to the throne is a reminder, it's by grace alone. You have been saved by grace alone. You are redeemed by grace alone. You will grow in grace by grace alone. You will eventually be at the throne of God by grace alone. And then one day we will rule with Jesus by grace alone. That's the message. I think it's a brilliant way to start as we come into what is going to be a picture, an element, a kind of a, a, an early echo of the kingdom of God coming into the world. It's by grace alone. So that's, that's our message this morning. That's the point that he's been making. So next week, uh, we'll get a different message because we're going to go see what Saul's up to. And it ain't pretty. But it is part of the story. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your grace your mercy to us, Lord, for a love that we never earned. We weren't good enough to, to warrant it. We didn't draw your attention by being such spectacular people. Lord, we, we were sinners. We were your enemies. We were unrighteous. And yet, you so loved us that you sent your only begotten son. And Lord, I thank you for the uh, example of David, um, this picture of David coming in a very fallen and weak way to the throne. Not at his height, probably at his weakness, weakest point in this early part of the story. And Lord, we're grateful because that's how we come, not in strength, but in weakness. And Lord, one of the great things that you promise in your word is that God gives grace to the humble. And so Lord, teach us humility that we might grow in your grace.
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.